maybe it's also the swelling music because it just happened like bam, bam, yeah. bam. Breaks into tears. Swelling music. Go get her, champ. It's like, <laughs> it just felt a little forced. Yeah. Yeah. Ice princess. More like drama queen. Am I right? Oh, ah. man. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Avatar the Podcast. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg. Hello, everyone out there that has already watched this episode of Avatar and probably more than I have. I've missed you all so much. <laughs> Hello, everyone who knows exactly who we are. Yes. This episode, we will be talking about Chapter 18, The Waterbending Master, or as we like to call it, Moves and counter moves. That's right. Before we dive into the episode, there are a couple things we need to cover first, including pulling our second winner for the Appa Pin giveaway. Yes, I'm so excited about that. I can't wait. Me too. Yep. I just like clicking the button. Uh, yeah, I bet you do. I I have no button to. I just sit here on the other end of the Zoom call, and I'm just like, "Who is it? Who is it? Who is it?" And then and then yeah. Acorn just like gives it a couple seconds, and I'm just like, "I swear, I need to know who it is right now." You just get to live vicariously through my button pressing. That's true. That's true. That's the worst kind. That's like when you go in the elevator, you want to press the button really bad, but someone goes, "Oh, what floor?" And I go, "No, I want to press the button." <laughs> Again, we are going to be pulling a total of five winners across the next few weeks. And today, we are going to be pulling our second winner. The second one. That means after today, there's only three chances left. So if you have yes. not entered yet, please, please do so. These Appa pins are amazing. Are we ready? For pulling it? Yeah, I'm, I'm always ready for pulling an Appa pin giveaway. <laughs> always. All right, here we go. And <gasps> our winner is on. On from Greece. Hey. Congratulations, On. We are going to be emailing you soon mm -hmm. to get your shipping address from you so we can ship you your Appa pin. Yay. Congratulations. And we do also have two more announcements, one of which is our new YouTube series, which I know Greg is particularly excited about. Get to mm -hmm. flex mm -hmm. those editing skills. Uh, yeah, I've been having, I had to brush them off a little bit and uh, they're getting less <laughs> rusty with every single edit that I make. So if you, I don't know, don't remember for some reason, or if you've forgotten, or if you maybe just didn't hear this the first time around, we are moving the Angmail segment from the podcast over to a YouTube series, as well as a podcast mini episode that will show up on your podcast feed. So if you want to hear the answers to all these big questions like... Hey, Greg and Acorn, are you going to be going through Legend of Korra? And hey, Greg and Acorn, are you going to be going through Legend of Korra? <laughs> Those are the big questions. Uh, well, I'll answer that now. The answer is yes, but there are other questions that all of you wonderful, wonderful people have written in to us, and we'll be addressing them as a much longer segment instead of just trying to get it all done in 15 minutes. We're now giving ourselves a little bit more time so we can actually read all these answers and address them in a fashion that we feel is not only fair... But also, I think more entertaining because I get to put up like emojis on the screen and quick cuts. And then I get to put up screenshots. And it's so much fun. I love editing for it's YouTube. It's so fun. It's so much fun. Uh, but that's over on our YouTube channel. If you have not already uh, given us a, a follow or subscribe over there, please, please do so. Because you'll be seeing those videos first on YouTube. And then you can hear the audio 
afterwards through the normal normal podcast feed. Yes. Yeah. And our other bit of news is Greg and I are both now on a stream team mm-hmm. through the network originator, Rob. Mm-hmm. So if you dabble in Twitch, if you like watching streams, you can now check us out every so often over on the Geek Generation on Twitch, where we will be participating in indie showcases where we get to show off new and upcoming indie games and some other fun things that we have planned down the line. So if you haven't already, you should and you're, you are on Twitch, you should a not only follow me, but follow the wonderful streamers that are part of the geek generation stream team and some of them are even part of the geek generation network like our friend katie peters plays and our other friends that may not necessarily podcast but are very active on twitch and they're all wonderful people extremely entertaining extremely entertaining entertaining but it's it's wonderful it's very exciting it's gonna be a lot of fun a lot of great stuff in the works over there. So come hang out with us. Everyone on the stream team, we've been friends with for a long time. We've worked together in various creative projects. Mm-hmm. So they're all wonderful people. And so if you're curious about checking us out, you can go over to twitch.tv slash team slash the geek generation and you'll see all of us. Mm-hmm. It will probably put a, a link in a link in the description for everyone too, just to make it a little easier. Yeah. yeah. We'll include it in our show notes. We'll, we'll put it there in the show notes this time. Not like the YouTube babish fiasco that oh, we had. No one noticed that. No one noticed no, that. Nothing to see here. Nothing. Don't worry we about totally it. We totally did not forget to link the YouTube videos to the Fireflakes recipes that we talked we about. Didn't. It's there. What are you talking about? It's been there the whole the time. The whole time. I just did like the <laughs> Jedi mind trick, like you hand did. movement. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh no, Greg, it's been there the whole time. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It worked. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to get started? I am ready. It is time to jump into today's episode, The mm-hmm. Waterbending Master. This episode was written by Michael Dante DiMartino and was directed by Giancarlo Volpe. Our episode opens with a koala otter floating on its back in the water. It notices something coming towards it and ducks under the surface just as Appa flies past. Sokka hangs over Appa's saddle and whines about how Appa is not able to fly any higher. Appa dips lower and drags one of his paws through the water, and Aang turns around and shoots back that, why don't they get on Sokka's back so he can fly them the rest of the way to the North Pole? I'd love to, Sokka returns. Climb on, everybody. Sokka's ready for takeoff. And then Momo jumps on his back. Yeah, he does. (laughs) And then like cuddles in his lap when Katara talks, which is just adorable. I love Momo. Katara attempts to settle things by reasoning that they've been flying for two days straight, so of course everyone's going to be tired and cranky. Sokka retorts that they can't even find the Northern Water Tribe. Suddenly, chunks of ice come shooting out of the water and knock Appa into a tumble. He lands in the water and is quickly frozen in place. Boats appear from all directions, revealing the Northern Water Tribe. Mm. The scene cuts to a Fire Navy base in the Fire Nation Harbor. Zhao stands in front of a map of the continents and notes that the Avatar is flying north, which means he must be seeking the Northern Water Tribe and a teacher who will teach him waterbending. Zhao advises the War Council patience, saying the Northern Water Tribe isn't just some small village they can walk into. It is a great nation that has survived 100 years of war. Its position in the tundra makes it treacherous. The Fire Nation must plan a massive invasion. 
that was actually a point. So this was one of the episodes that had a director and writer commentary, I would say, or a show runner commentary. Yeah. Which was really cool. So I ended up, I got to watch that because I specifically bought the Blu-rays for Korra and for Avatar or for yeah, this podcast. I so I was, I saw that and I was like, oh, I'm so, super excited to give this a listen. And what they said is the reason why the Southern Water Tribe is so like small and and they're so fragmented is because they were not as well prepared and well defended as the northern water tribe was so essentially what that means is the southern water tribe really kind of experienced a loss of identity from a cultural standpoint because they're just scavenging at that point they're they're just trying to survive where the northern water tribe could really thrive because they're so well protected because that they pretty much just tunneled themselves in ice or surrounded themselves in ice essentially yeah yeah so So everywhere around them i mean they're on the ocean's edge but they're like greg just said built into an ice almost cliff so all around them it's just tundra so you can either approach by land through endless miles of freezing cold or approach up to their giant massive wall uh, by the ocean so it's really hard to get to them yeah, so they're easily defended and they also just feel, as we'll see later, they feel like they're just more capable of defending themselves as benders specifically. True. Yeah. Team Avatar is escorted to the entrance of the Northern Water Tribe, where we see exactly what Zhao was referring to. A giant ice wall stretches from glacier to glacier, barring anyone from entering the city. On its surface is the emblem of the Water Tribe, a circle containing a crescent moon and tidal waves. After so many days of traveling, they're finally here. And in a fun little fact, little detail, the moon is a crescent moon at this point. If you look at yes, the sky. Yes, in the sky. Yeah, which is really yeah. cool. In the commentary, they do say how that was very intentional. Unlike the last time they showed the moon very prominently, where they couldn't <laughs> even get the phases right. Yeah, during the winter solstice, it goes from like half a crescent to, to full, like a full in like yeah. a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The tribe members escorting them bend a tunnel in the ice wall, and Appa floats through. They travel through a gigantic canal system controlled by waterbenders, and both Katara and Aang are awed by the number of waterbenders in the city. As they float through the city, crowds gather on the bridges and paths around them, and Aang waves. Sokka notices a beautiful girl in a passing boat and is immediately smitten. Yeah, Katara's like, wow, this city is beautiful. And Sokka's like, yeah, "Yeah, she she is. (laughs) classic yeah there's a lot going on here i can only imagine what it feels like for katara especially who grew up in the southern water tribe which as you just established was broken and fragmented culturally Mm. during the war and she was the only waterbender in her tribe so to come into this giant city and see gosh like a dozen waterbenders not 100 feet into the border that must be amazing yeah, it was amazing for just me, like watching the whole thing. I was like, I, I know there are more waterbenders out there, but just seeing them that plentiful was was kind of like almost off putting. It's like overwhelming, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, suddenly, like Katara almost feels a little less special because like she's the only one that we've known so far, really. And now all of a sudden there's just like these other probably average waterbenders that are doing average things that are just like mind blowing and like I don't want to say earth shadowing because that's like a horrible mix of elements, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really kind of is. It, it just changes your whole view on the Southern water tribe specifically in water bending. Yeah. Especially the way that they're water bending it too, because 
they're water bending basically the northern water tribe version of the Panama Canal to get yeah. them into the city, which yep. was so cool. And for those who haven't learned about the Panama Canal or forgot after learning about it in school, the Panama Canal is an engineered waterway that connects the Atlantic Ocean with the Pacific Ocean using a series of canal locks and artificial lakes that lift and lower ships across what would otherwise be land. So it's like a water elevator and yeah. it's incredible. And it was such a groundbreaking point in history because it would cut down the time it took to travel around Africa by like months. Yeah. It was huge game changer. Yeah. And so I love how they took that inspiration. They also, th this was a joke that was made on the commentary. I don't remember who it was, if it was Brian or Michael, but they, they said that the look of the Northern Water Tribe was slightly inspired by Italy, which was like kind of gave me that feeling b b before even watching the commentary. I was like, this seems kind of like Italy, but ice. Yeah. And then one of them joked like, yeah, this is totally Italy. And that's why I went on vacation there this summer or something to that effect, which I thought was yeah, yeah. kind of cute. But yeah, it like, was like the canals and the gondolas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it was very, very Italy inspired. Yeah. Something else I talk about. I don't believe it was in the in the commentary. But since traveling is such a major focus in Avatar, and we rarely spend more than one episode in any given location, they spent a lot of time developing the Northern Water Tribe in this city. Mm. So they explored it from many different angles. And we can see this in just the scope and promise of the city when they're first entering it. Because when you look at the way the, the city has been developed and formed, it looks like there's a lot more cultural intention placed in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And there's a lot more like not relics, but there is a lot more like they have uh, animal totems just in the background that are kind yeah. of blurred out like that kind of stuff where we don't see that in the Southern Water Tribe because it's just tense and like maybe we saw Bato. He had that headpiece, that animal headpiece. Yeah, the spiritual headdress yeah. or something like little things like that. But these are just like these grand carvings that are like in the ice and made out of snow and all that stuff for the Northern Water Tribe. And again, we don't really see that with the Southern. Yeah. Another part is when they're first entering the city and you can see how it's almost like a, a pyramid style, how you have levels to the parts of the city mm. that lead up to the palace. And so in the very front, did you notice, Greg, that there's like almost these long open areas of ice and then you get into the buildings where citizens are living and that kind of thing. I stared at that for a long time trying to figure out what that is. And I finally figured out or I think I figured out that it's warrior training grounds. Oh, yeah, because it would make sense, right? Having your defenders, your warriors bunking and living and training at the outermost part of the city yep. so that they're there in place in case there's ever an attack. That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I'll I'll include the picture that I found to illustrate this because it's really tough to describe. And then one final note from this little entry scene is we see another hybrid animal. It's a buffalo yak. I, I missed that one. I don't think I remember that one. How could I not remember? It's, I watched this episode like five times. <laughs> you, you'll notice it kind of looks like a reindeer. It's in the foreground. We can see it from the side and there's someone riding on its back. But it is a buffalo yak and the Northern Water Tribe military use them as cavalry units. Oh, yeah. It's so cute. Look at his little Isn't face. Isn't it cute? Yeah. His little face and his little. So like, it's got these like, yeah, it's super fluffy. It's got these like big hooves. Look at yeah, that. Yeah. Kind of like a Clydesdale. Yeah. So cute. Yeah. The scene changes to a nighttime scene on Zuko's ship, where Iroh and the crew are gathered for music night around a fire. 
Lieutenant G plays the Pippa as Iroh sings Four Seasons. The cook dances with another crew member while the rest plays supporting instruments around them. The music is interrupted, however, when Admiral Zhao comes aboard, smirking to himself about his diabolical plan. So we get to see Music Night A. How amazing is that? We've been talking about Music Night this whole season, I feel like, and we finally get to see it. And we get to hear Uncle singing. Now, Mako, who is the voice actor of Iroh, does not actually enjoy singing at all. <laughs> However, he does have a pretty good voice. So Brian and Michael, whenever they had the opportunity to make Iroh sing, they would make Mako sing, which is pretty funny. I love that. I love that they're just like, <laughs> but you're pretty good at it. He goes, no, I don't want to do it. That's what he sounds like. For That's my Iroh. Yeah. <laughs> that's not my Iroh. That's my, that's my Mako, like, grumpy man impression. And also, fun fact, I've been singing the song to my dog pretty much nonstop today. So It did get stuck in my head, too. Yeah. I just love being able to see Music Night and again, seeing the relationship between Iroh and the crew members and how they really do have a, a tight little bond. They do. Yeah. The scene cuts to another nighttime view, but this time of the Northern Water Tribe Palace. Inside, Team Avatar is being honored with a feast. A large crab is placed over a hot spring as men play large tangu drums and waterfalls rush nearby. The tribe's chief stands up and recognizes both Sokka and Katara from their sister tribe, as well as the Avatar. He also announces his daughter's 16th birthday, which means she is of Marian age. Chief Arnook then introduces Master Paku and his waterbending students, who will be performing a waterbending demonstration that evening. So here's, yes. here's some casting trivia for everyone. I'm I'm gonna I'm getting better at just picking them out and interrupting Acorn as soon as they come up. They're well timed. Good job. Chief Arnook is actually voiced by John Polito. And now if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because you might know him from such movies as The Big Lebowski, The Crow. Oh. He's actually a big Cohen Brothers character actor. But what I know him from, which is actually one of my favorite movies of all time, is The Rocketeer. Oh, man. He plays the character. The character's name is Bigelow, and he's the one that actually names the Rocketeer for the newspapers. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a smaller role, but he is like that kind of character actor. And his voice, he has a very distinct voice. For me, it's almost unrecognizable in the role as Chief Arnook. Interesting. Yeah. Because I was listening for it. I was like, I don't like some words I can kind of hear it, but not really. Something else that's really cool is meeting John Polito was... One of the first times that Mike Kanetsko was actually starstruck while meeting one of the voice actors because he's such a big Coen Brothers fan where he met this yeah. guy. He's like, oh, my God. And I think that's like really sweet because there have been like large actors in this show so far. Like, you know, you've, yeah. we've been talking about them while they may be large now, maybe not at that point. Someone like Jason Isaacs has been around for a while. So like that's a huge recurring thing they got. But like that was just kind of cute. He's like, yeah, I met John. This like. Smaller character actor that not not a lot of people know about. And like, <laughs> I could just see Mike like blushing. <laughs> yeah. Adorable. I yeah. love it. To talk a little bit about the palace itself. Uh, like I mentioned before, the city is is built kind of in layers that build up to the point where the royal palace sits. And so as a result, it's one of the most recognizable landmarks because it can be seen almost everywhere in the city. It's kind of like a monument in that way. And mm. it represents strength and power. The Northern Water Tribe is ruled by a hereditary monarchic chiefdom. And because, as we're going to see, this is a very patriarchal society, because the chiefdom is inherited through bloodlines, 
when the chief has a daughter, that daughter can't inherit the chiefdom, at least at this time, during mm. and before the Hundred Year War. So because there is a little less emphasis on political movings where you can kind of move up in politics and gain like better positions. When a daughter of a chief becomes eligible to marry, it is a great opportunity for someone to put themselves in a better political status because by marrying the daughter, you become or inherit the the leadership position of the tribe. That's messed up. That's pretty messed up. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, we see that change by Cora. That's yeah. one thing I do remember is things are very different in the Northern Water Tribe. Oh, for sure. And I would assume it started with this episode, like these of the events that transpire. Yeah. Yeah. Princess Yue takes a seat next to Sokka at the head table, and the two proceed to have an awkward first conversation. Sokka introduces himself as basically a prince from the Southern Water Tribe and asks Yue if she'd like to do an activity sometime. Yeah. Yeah, it was so cute. <laughs> Yue is charmed, though just as nervous as he is. Nearby, Arnuk introduces Aang to Paku and tells Paku that Aang will be his newest student. Paku tells Aang not to expect any special treatment just because he's the Avatar. Aang assures him that he and his friend can't wait to get started. After relaxing for a few days, Paku tells him to go visit a tropical island if he wants to relax. If not, he will see them both at sunrise. So I have a quick voice actor note for UA. She is actually voiced by Joanna Brady, who I think is how you say her name. Is Brady or Brady? Anyways, she was actually in video game high school, if you remember. Oh, I that. do actually. Yep. I watched that. She was Jenny Matrix. So she was like the main oh, okay. female protagonist or one of the main female protagonists in it. She was also in the movie Easy A with Emma Stone. And a couple other things, but I know her most from video game high school. I adore Easy A. I've only seen that movie once. It wasn't my bag. I'll just say that. It wasn't wasn't made for for Greg. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I can see that. I loved it for the the witty lines. And Stanley Tucci in that movie is just chef's kiss. See, I forgot. So I, I think I watched it when it came out in 2010. And I think I don't think I've had it since or seen it since because I don't remember Stanley Tucci being even in that movie. He's the dad and her parents are uh, great. Well, maybe I'll have to rewatch it. Yeah. Also a reminder at this point, Paku is the silhouetted waterbender from the show's opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have one for Paku too. Oh, go for it. So Paku is, is voiced by Victor Brandt, who has been in, I didn't see which character it was in this, Jackie Chan Adventures. So put another. Wow. That's like three now. Yeah. He played Dr. Emil Hamill in Superman the Animated Series. In Gargoyles, he was Rabbi Lowe, and he's <gasps> been in the Spawn Animated HBO series. I know him most from the Adult Swim animated series called Metalocalypse. He was General Crozier, if anyone's ever huh. seen that. He's like the the evil general part of the, uh, the, the shadow society that is trying to stop Deathclock from bringing about the Metalocalypse. I love that show so much. It was so dumb. Oh, wow. It was so good. But yeah, Victor Brandt was his name. He does a very, again, unrecognizable from the voice work that I know him from. He does a very, very good job as Paku. Yeah, he does an amazing job. And that's a, another little fun fact there. Paku is one of the best marriages of character voice and design in the series, according to Mike and Brian. They really enjoyed his character. I agree. I, it was like one of those things where I was watching the commentary and one of them, I don't remember what, he was like, whose voice is that? And the other one jumped on it was just like, oh, yeah. that's Victor Brandt. And he's like, oh, yeah, like 
for me, that doesn't show that they don't know who their voice actors are. It shows to me that the voice and the character are so like synonymous. Yes, yeah, synonymous or so just like one entity for them that yeah. they can't really separate it. came it. together perfectly. Yeah, it was so good. So good. We next see Zuko hiding out in his room in typical angsty Zuko fashion. Iroh enters and Zuko says, for the last time, I'm not playing the Sungi horn. Iroh clarifies that he's there to discuss their plans because there's a bit of a problem. Zhao enters behind him and announces that he is recruiting Zuko's crew for an expedition to the North Pole. Behind him, Iroh is particularly heartbroken that this announcement means their cook will be leaving as well. (laughs) Zhao rubs it in Zuko's face that he won't be there to watch him capture the Avatar. Iroh stops Zuko from lunging at Zhao, and Zhao turns to see two broadswords hanging on Zuko's wall. He experiences a flashback to when the Blue Spirit used swords just like these when he took the Avatar from under Zhao's nose. This is such a good scene. Mm -hmm. I know. This is where he starts to suspect Zuko as being the Blue Spirit in a normal person's continuity. In my continuity, which is quite different, I still think that he slightly suspected that Zuko was the blue spirit, like somewhere in the back of his mind and him seeing those broadswords there just cemented it. And now he's like super yeah. like he knows it now, but where before in the episode of the blue spirit, he was just kind of like, I think that's Zuko, but I can't tell. Or he's like, this seems familiar because like, why else would he see just broadswords on a wall? And like he probably sees a bunch of those all the time. Like it looks very decorative, which is what he says it is. I feel like that's a common decorative Fire Nation thing is to have like weapons on the wall. Yeah, it is or they are an actual weapon. Yeah. You know, Zuko makes a distinction that they're antiques. Right. Zhao is like, oh, I didn't know you, you knew how to use these weapons. Yeah. So I, I like that. I still think that he like in that episode, that's why he wanted to bring him in alive to the Fire Lord Ozai is because he knew that was kind of Zuko that would just, or he had a feeling it was. And if it was, that would be just like so much better. Yeah, I agree. I like that because it's it's Zhao. You know, yeah. he's really intelligent. For how cruel and ruthless he is, he is in his position for a reason. And that is because he is a very intelligent and smart, tactical uh, military leader. Yeah. I know people are going to say, but in the commentary, Brian and Mike said that this is when he finds out or this is the first time he thinks about it. And I don't agree with that. I think they're just (laughs) saying that to throw you off their real trail. And that is Zhao kind of new. Yeah. I didn't know you were skilled with broadswords, Prince Zuko. Zuko quickly schools his face and replies that he isn't. They're just antiques for decoration. Zhao asks Iroh if he ever heard of the blue spirit. Just rumors. I don't think he is real. Oh, he's real. All right, says Zhao and identifies the entity as an enemy to the Fire Nation. He extends another offer to Iroh to join him in his invasion plans and leaves. Okay, so a couple things here. Mm -hmm. I love how tense that moment is. It's such a small detail, but there's this string plucking sound that makes your skin crawl. Mm. Did you catch that? No, but I was too busy with the Four Seasons song still playing in my yeah, head true. Okay. to this, to this <laughs> moment. Yeah. When you go back and, and you listen, it it adds an element of tension to it because it's it really is like a skin crawling, nervous, tense, something bad is going to happen kind of sound. Yeah. I also like that um, Iroh is just super chill throughout this whole time. And you, oh, a, as usual. Again, you can't convince me that Iroh doesn't know that Zuko is the Blue Spirit. He has to know. Yeah. He's too he wise to. and smart for that. Yeah. And I love their dynamic because Iroh 
is probably pretty pretty knowledgeable of the things that Zuko gets up to, and yet he still gives him his space to be his angsty self. Yeah. And <laughs> that moment when he walks in and is trying to get him to play the Sungi horn, or, or we learn that he's been trying to get him to play the Sungi horn, it has the same energy as like any family get together where your family's trying to get you to like play a board game or something. Yeah. Mom, for the last time, I told you I don't want to play Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> that game is four hours long anyways, and we never finish. Why would I want to yeah, play it? Exactly. I'm going to my room. <laughs> Back in the North Pole, Katara and Aang arrive early in the morning for their first waterbending lesson. Katara is especially excited because she's waited for this moment her whole life. When Paku sees Katara, however, he tells them that there must have been a misunderstanding because in the Northern Water Tribe, it is forbidden for women to learn waterbending. Katara is immediately pissed and tells Paku that she didn't travel across the entire world so he could tell her no. When pressed, Paku explains that according to custom, Women use their waterbending abilities to heal. Aang threatens to not learn from Paku if he won't teach Katara, but Katara tells Aang he can't risk his training for her. She leaves, and Aang promptly gets pummeled by his stream of water. <laughs> I love how Paku's like, all right, let's begin, and then water bends at him and just knocks him yeah. over. Another small thing is uh, when, <laughs> when he tells Katara that she has her signature, excuse me, face. Yep. Yeah, they do a really good job with Katara's like expressions. Katara and Sokka specifically are very expressive. And I, I guess Aang, I'll extend it to Aang as well because it is true. But those three are just like you can read their minds through, through their faces, yeah. which is like just credit to the animators. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They even talk about that in the commentary as well, saying that they did an incredible job. I think specifically with Sokka, Sokka yeah. with his voice actor and the animation of his expressions. And there was one particular animator that they credit for that to really who really brought Sokka to life. Yeah. Some distance away, Sokka spots Yue's boat as it drifts down a canal. He calls to her and runs to catch up, where he then engages in small talk about the banquet the night before. He tells her it wasn't as fun after she left, and Yue blushes. When asked if they can do something together, Yue tells him to meet her on a certain bridge that night. Sokka is so thrilled that he doesn't notice the walkway ending into another canal and falls into the water. Yue laughs and apologizes. It was worth it, Sokka says dreamily. See you tonight. How cold do you think that water is? There's a I was thinking that like a lot of water's being thrown around and being fallen into. And I'm just like, that's gotta be, that has to be like close to sub zero temperatures there. Like that is cold water. I know the Northern water tribe must be so resistant to cold because in a later scene, Paku is even just sitting out on the snow eating noodles. Like yeah. they're not wearing gloves. Yeah. They're just hanging out in the open. That's crazy. Did you see the squid tentacles in the, in the noodles? Yeah, It's so gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, make, let's make these a little more interesting. Give them some protein. <laughs> Throw some squid in there. Meanwhile, back at Zhao's camp, he hires the same band of pirates we met in the waterbending scroll and seems to imply he needs them for a job that involves Prince Zuko. It's a very quick scene, but we can tell that he is up to no good here. Yeah, I love seeing the pirates again. And, and uh, yeah. Brian Kanesco resuming his role as the pirate Barker O. So yep. that was really funny. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I just like... I don't know, I have a soft spot in my heart for pirates because they're like, they're murderous and they're despicable and they're terrible people, but they're like, they're pirates, man. That's what they do. They know what they are and they don't have any like qualms with it. Yeah, yeah. One of the most uh, iconic images or symbols of freedom. 
You just go out on the high sea and you do whatever the heck yeah. you want. Something very like romantic about that. Well, you're not the first to think that. <laughs> what? I thought you're popular for a reason. I thought that was an original <laughs> thought. Dang, Nabbit. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> Katara finds her way to the building where Yugoda is teaching a class on healing. A mannequin is laid out before her on a platform surrounded by water, and Yugoda is seen guiding water along the channels, mapping out the acupressure points in the body. Katara introduces herself and begrudgingly joins the class. Do you know who the voice of Yagoda is? I heard that she was someone really, really famous. This is like voice acting royalty. Okay. And also like legendary, although you might not know her name. Her name is Lucille Bliss and you might know her from. So here's the lesser known stuff. She was in Ewoks, the television series, the animated cartoon. I loved that show. She was the original voice of Smurfette from the Smurfs. That's huge. And she's also the voice of Anastasia <gasps> in Disney's Cinderella. Oh, my God. She's the youngest of the ugly stepsisters. Yeah. Yep. Holy crap. So she's been around for a while. This is a big pull for Avatar. Yeah. If I say a name like Nolan North or Troy Baker, like a lot of people who do who know voice acting are going to be like, oh, yeah, that's great. But like this is like history. This is a historical yeah. voice actor that they, they landed, which is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, she she's a, a fun character, too. I love the way that she sounds. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's experience right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that mannequin, too, was super cool. Mm-hmm. And I had to look up healing, of course, oh, sure. to learn more about it. And so I learned that physically, healing draws on the restorative properties of water when applied to organisms that are primarily composed of it, such as human beings. The technique is known to work on physical injuries, such as burns, lacerations, broken bones, diseases brought on by severe pollution, and severe tissue damage caused by lightning bolts. These are all examples that we see throughout the show, which I think is where it comes from. But waterbending healing is also used to cure mental distress and tampering. Hmm. Yeah, super interesting. And I think this scene here is so underrated because while obviously flawed the northern water tribe culture feels so incredibly real and fleshed out because of these examples of like gendered bending it's it's so cool that's that's what i love about avatar and i've said it before just the world building is thoughtful it's detailed and it it plays by its own rules too oh yeah for sure oh and really quickly too the water bending healing is very specific i don't i don't remember if we talked about its real world connection in uh, the deserter or not, because it's been okay. a little bit since I got to listen to that. Uh, but it is based off of a healing practice called Reiki, which is a spiritual practice commonly known as oh, palm yeah. or hands on healing. I'm not doing a Naruto deep dive for a show, but I'm fairly certain that it's very similar to like the Naruto healing, spiritual healing and stuff like that, too. Like when I saw this um, for the first time back in the deserter, it, it was very reminiscent of Naruto. And I'm not just saying Naruto because I started rewatching that again. I'm trying to get through it. It's a lot of episodes, <laughs> but I'm trying to get through it. Yeah. Um, but it had that same kind of like vibe to it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Aang isn't having any easier of a time with Master Paku. As the master slurps down a bowl of noodles... With squid Mm -hmm. or octopus. Gross. (laughs) Aang struggles to feel the push and pull of the water he's bending. Paku dismissively wonders if the move is too advanced for him and offers to give him an easier one. After class, Katara thanks Yugoda for the lesson and Yugoda asks her who the lucky boy is, 
referring to the betrothal necklace Katar is wearing. Katar explains how it's her grandmother's necklace that was passed down to her through her mother, and in that moment, Yugoda recognizes it as Kana's. She also adds that Katara is the spitting image of her grandmother. Yugoda reveals that Kana was born in the Northern Water Tribe and left after she was engaged to a young waterbender. The reasons behind her leaving have always been a mystery to her. Later that night, Zuko's crew leaves and wishes them good luck. Zuko is in his room sulking when his uncle comes to pass on the message. Zuko calls the crew traitors and then doesn't respond when his uncle asks him if he'd like to go for a walk because it's a beautiful night. This made me laugh. Again, this has such of a, especially when Iroh says, whatever makes you happy. Yeah. It's such parent energy. Yeah, it is. It's like, shut up, dad. Leave me alone. (laughs) Okay, son, whatever makes you happy. (laughs) As Iroh walks down the gangplank, a familiar iguana parrot is seen flying overhead. The pirates sneak on board with barrels of blasting jelly. One of the doors squeaks when they try to open it. Zuko hears this and gets up to investigate, thinking it might be his uncle returning. He continues to wander the empty ship and eventually winds up in the control room. Unbeknownst to him, a trail of spark powder leading to the barrels of blasting jelly was ignited by the pirates. Um, Small note about the blasting jelly, but I think this this is a cool storytelling element. The show references things that we've learned in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So the blasting jelly, for instance, we learned in the episode Jet, um, as well as the spark powder. That's right. And so we see them both here again. Oh, and we also see the spark powder in the Northern Air Temple. So I like how the show introduces and then later calls back to yeah. the things that we've learned. Yeah. And it, it introduces it in such a intuitive and smart way that we're just like oh we know what that is now and like even in the naming convention so we don't need to remember that we saw this in jet because we know what it does it's it's just established it's not the thing from jet anymore it's just the thing in the world which again which you said earlier it's just like what this series is all about is world building so introduce something new make sure you keep on showing it and now it's second nature to us Yep. Yeah, exactly. I also love that um, Brian's line delivery of that. Careful with the blasting jelly. Like, it's, so, <laughs> yeah. it's so over the top for a whisper, but I love it so much. Yeah, it's like a dramatic stage whisper. Yeah. <laughs> Zuko looks out the window of the control room and spots the pirate's iguana parrot perched on the guardrail of the ship. Realization for what it means washes over his face. The barrels of blasting jelly explode and a wave of fire engulfs the control room. The explosion rocks the ship and Iroh hears the explosion from up the road. He cries Zuko's name and rushes back to the docks to stare into the inferno in horror, disbelief, and pain. Mm. This was so sad. Seeing Iroh in pain just hurts me. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. Make it stop. But like his, a lot of his life is pretty painful though, if I remember correctly. I know. But he's still so positive, which is like such a big part of his character. Yeah, that says a lot about him, too. Really does. Um, So we talked about this before because we both watched the commentary Mm -hmm. and talked about Mm -hmm. it. I was so mad when I heard them talk about the moment in the control room when the explosion reaches Zuko. Because I noticed in my first watch through that there's a very small detail where Zuko bends a ball or a bubble of fire around him to protect him from the blast. And they talk about it in the commentary. And I was like, darn it, that was in my notes. See, I didn't see it on the first like two watch throughs. And then the third one was third one was with the commentary. But I just assumed that they did that. 
I was just like, mm-hmm. he probably just did. They probably put in some little detail somewhere that I'd have to go through frame by frame to really see it. And he does. He literally just puts the fire shield from Sonic 3 on is what it looks like, essentially. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was like they could have yeah. just not had that and then just be like, oh, yeah, this is what happened. But no, they like went through the the effort of having their animation department like animate that, which is awesome. Yeah. And it, it shows a dedication to the story and knowing like everything has a consequence. Everything has an impact. Yeah. And so. I mean, it also, the other side of it is it shows, again, how talented of a bender Zuko is. Yep. Within a split second, he was able to respond and protect himself. Mm-hmm. I also, um, Iroh's reaction to all of this, because at this point, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Iroh was in on this, like, especially after watching the episode. Or do you want to talk about that later? Let's talk about okay. that later, because I that kind of threw me. I don't know. I, I think he's in on the plan later. No, I think he was in on it from that point on. I think that was the whole plan was everyone gets off the ship except Zuko so they could blow it up and then only Zuko is going to protect himself. I think that was the plan. Oh, that implies so much trust in, in Zuko. I and I don't know if I I don't know if I'm on board with that just because of his reaction, his emotional reaction. Well, that's why Iroh was still worried because it's risky business for sure. Yeah. And there's a high probability that it would fail. But it's the only thing that they could really do at that point. Oh, my God. I don't know how I feel and about that's that. That's also probably why Zuko had that split second extra reaction time. So he could put up that shield because he saw the bird. He knew it was going down. Yeah. And then like mentally prepared himself within that moment. And Iroh doesn't know. He assumes that his nephew is probably OK. But a he has to act like he's not in case anyone's watching him. So people will be like, oh, yeah, no, he's really upset. But B, he also is probably pretty upset because he doesn't know if Zuko's okay or not. Oh man. All right, I'm shook. Let's let's go come back to that later. Okay. <laughs> Talk about it more. Okay. Sokka meets Yue on the bridge later that night. He gives her a carving of a fish that he made for her, which she mistakenly thinks is a bear. Her obvious discomfort increases until she finally tells him that she made a mistake and she shouldn't have asked him to come here. She runs away, leaving Sokka confused and disappointed. He throws the fish carving into the canal and goes home, where Katara asks him how warrior training is going. He kicks his pack in frustration and flops on the ground, to which Aang says, wow, that bad? (laughs) Sokka tells them about how confusing Yue is being and then asks them how waterbending training is going. Now it's Katara's turn to flop on the ground in frustration. Aang tells Sokka that Master Poophead won't teach her because she's a girl. To which Sokka suggests that Aang just teach her. Katara's head pops up. Why didn't I think of that? So really quickly, going back to UA just for a moment. Yeah. That bear fish carving was storyboarded as a throwaway. And Brian and Michael <laughs> liked it so much that they literally took the design from the storyboard and put it into the show unchanged. I love that so much. It's such a bad carving. too. <laughs> it's so bad. It doesn't even look like a bear or a fish. It's just like... no. <laughs> I don't know. It looks like a it's like an amoeba. Stump. Yeah, an amoeba. It's even better. Yeah, it's so bad. But I, <laughs> I like that. Like that that was just Sokka's like, I made this for you. And it's kind of like when you have like you're a little kid, you go to camp and you like make a macaroni frame and you're like, I made this yes. for you. And the macaroni isn't even on the frame. No, it's like hanging yeah. off by a drip of glue. Yep. <laughs> yep. I also love this. The end of the scene where where they they're like yeah this is the perfect solution i get to learn water bending everyone's happy and Sokka's like but i'm not happy yeah, and that. then they're like you're never happy i love that so much 
And he just accepts it. Yeah. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Outside, Aang shows Katara the move he learned that day from Master Paku. He tells her the move is all about sinking and floating. He bends a stream of water to him and then passes it to her. She catches it and the water spins around her and then shoots up in the air. That was amazing, Aang exclaims. That wasn't me, Katara replies. Above them is Master Paku. He glares down at them, severe and furious. You have disrespected me, my teachings, and my entire culture. You are no longer welcome as my student. After saying this, he leaves. Man, um, I remember watching this the first time and realizing just how serious the situation was here. Yeah. Because the wrath of Paku, oof, you can feel it. Well, he's very like set in his ways. And at this point, any deviation to that is just like sets him, sets him right off, essentially. So he is coming from the angle of this is the way it's always been. And I can kind of I can kind of see his rationale in that. Let's assume for a moment that the difference between the this is a big assumption, by the way, that the southern water tribe and the northern water tribe is that the northern water tribe does not allow women to bend, but heal. So they have a dedicated healer class for all you gamers at home, essentially. And the let's say the Southern Water Tribe did not have that. Who survived better? Who Who is a better survivor during the 100-year war? Culturally, is the Northern Water Tribe. Who assume that like they have these roles and they've worked so far, so why change it? Okay. If I'm trying to make him less toxic masculinity, yeah. that's kind of my... Because I don't think Paku is a bad person and i don't think he like means to be a negative and toxic uh character which he is presented to be in this in many different forms i think he's just this is the way it's been this is how we've survived i don't want to risk the survival of my friends my family me everyone i know and love the culture i know and love for this because he thinks it's a threat to it which i'm not saying is right or wrong I'm saying that's probably his mindset. Yeah, it's just an, an ingrained mindset yeah. which could be supported by the longevity of the culture. Yeah, it's the if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Right, right, yeah. So actually, I'm gonna say it's it's wrong. It's not right. It's wrong in my opinion. But like, I can see his rationale in all of that. Yeah, and he, you know, you know, he comes around at this point. But yeah, yeah, eventually, eventually. <laughs> The next morning, Katara, Sokka, and Aang appear before Chief Arnook and Master Paku, with Yue in the council room. Council members are also seated behind them. Chief Arnook asks Katara what he wants her to do. Force Master Paku to take Aang back as his student? Yes, actually. He suggests that Master Paku might change his mind if Katara swallows her pride and apologizes to him. Katara appears to do exactly this for Aang's sake but immediately loses her temper when Paku smugly says, I'm waiting, little girl. What a jerk. What a jerk. What a jerk. He's like, he's just loving it a little too much, like 10% too much for me. He's, he is that person who just needs to have the final say. He just keeps poking until it breaks. Yep. And we definitely see that because (laughs) we get a glimpse here of the Katara we met in the first episode where she yells at him for being a sour old man and then challenges him uh, basically to a waterbending version of an Agni Kai. It's yeah. like, I'll see you outside. Let's settle this. Yeah. But also way less deadly, which again, oh yes, cultural difference between 
Fire Nation and the Water Tribes. It's it's less of an absolute. Yeah. It's like a let's just like schoolyard fight kind of. So just until someone <laughs> like tags out versus to the death. Yeah, I would say it would be just as easy to kill someone in a water bending duel. But Paku specifically says during their fight, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. So he's just using this as a training exercise almost to put Katara in her place. Right. But like, I, I think the fact that there is no official Agni Kai for the water tribe too is also yeah, very telling exactly. of it. And like, yeah, he could have killed her, but I feel like water tribe citizens, whatever, aren't that, uh, they aren't that way with themselves. They'll fight each other. They get in disagreements. They'll butt heads for sure. But they don't have, as we've, at least as we've seen so far, is the concept of a fight to the death. Yeah. Because it's counterintuitive. Yeah. It's not, their honor is not wrapped up in it as the honor of a Fire Nation individual is wrapped up in an Agni Kai. And I mean, we also learned in the Southern Air Temple episode that while Agni Kai's often ended in a fight to the death, Originally, it was whoever got burned first, mm, or at least that was that's the, the official rules, I guess. Fair. Yeah, I guess I just always assumed it was to the death because I don't know. Shao was so upset with Zuko. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> well, I think it's a lot of it's tied up in like an honorable death. It's like oh, if I lose and then have to go on living, I will be dishonored. Yeah, that that's very fair. And also like the water tribes don't have that idea of honor in that respect. Yeah. Right. They're just kind of like they really kind of are just the other side of the coin to the Fire Nation. Yep. Which is very interesting. That is very interesting. A couple of things from this scene is when we first pan in on the council room, there's two symbols on the wall. We've seen one of them on the wall outside of the Northern Water Tribe, which is the Water Tribe emblem with the crescent moon mm-hmm. and the waves. The other symbol is the symbol for waterbending. So mm. that was thought that was cool. Yeah. And I also love UA's prim and ladylike gasp. Yeah. When Katara's like, I'll be outside if you're man enough to face me. And <laughs> UA's like, oh my. <laughs> I think... I think that's probably why I don't like Yue as much is because she is that very yeah. stereotypical princess, as at least in this episode that we've seen. Whereas Suki, who I really ship with Sokka, is just not yes. that at all, which I appreciate. Nope. I am 100% on the same page. Yeah. Um, And then another thing is in the crowd, and you kind of see this throughout the whole episode, whenever you see Water Tribe citizens in the background... There's a visual difference between them and the people that we've seen in the Southern Water Tribe. And in designing the Northern Water Tribe, Mike and Brian wanted to show how the people were a little fancy and cosmopolitan compared to Katara and Sokka's more rugged tribe Mm -hmm. in the South. And so we can see this in the various furred hats, skirts with the women, uh, furred overcoats, there's a little bit extra going on with their clothing versus just something warm to wear. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, the colors are a little off, too. Like when you look at Sokka yeah. next to Yue, like the their purple is a little deeper for the Northern yeah. Water Tribe versus their the Southern is a little more blue. Yeah, exactly. Iroh and Zhao have tea in his camp and discuss the tragedy of Zuko's death. Iroh plays Zhao by telling him the Fire Lord will not be pleased when he finds out who is behind the attack. Pirates. Iroh accepts Zhao's offer of joining him as a general. They toast the Fire Nation's victory together. I love this scene. A, it's beautifully shot. It's really cool. It's very dynamic. And B, it 
reminds me of a game of pie show where both opponents yes. sit on either side of the table and they just kind of have like a battle of the wits. Both of them are lying to each other and both of them are aware that the other is lying to them. Or they suspect. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, suspect aware, potato, potato. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think they're they're both like they're on to each other, to say the least. That something yeah. is amiss between the two of them. And they're trying very hard not to show their cards. Yeah. But Zhao is the one who can't help but smirk. He tries to hide it behind a cup of tea. Oh, I love that shot. But he's just like, he says that line where it's just like, oh, you know who did this to Zuko or who killed Zuko? And Iroh's like, yes, it's pirates. And then he has that like smirk. He's like, yes, the old man doesn't know. And Iroh's like, yes, <laughs> he doesn't think I know. It's so, it's yeah. so much going on that isn't being said in that scene. Yes. Yes, which Avatar is so good at doing. Mm -hmm. Props to the animation teams. Yes. Sokka and Aang trail after Katara as she angrily stomps down the steps, removing her coat in the process. She's so angry that she doesn't care that she'll probably lose to Paku. She's doing it because someone needs to slap some sense into that guy. Paku descends the steps and walks past her, dismissing her by saying she should go back to the healing huts with the other women where she belongs. Furious, Katara uses a water whip to strike him. He turns and says, fine, you want to learn to fight so bad? Study closely. He bends two streams of water from nearby pools and sends them both at a charging Katara who falls back. He joins the two streams together, encircling both Katara and himself in a forceful ring of water. Katara edges away from the ring and blasts the water away. This blast, of course, hits Sokka <laughs> out of the crowd. Yep. Every time, and every time, every time. <laughs> it's so good. Poor Asaka. You know, what karma did he build up? <laughs> <laughs> the sound he makes, too. He's like, <laughs> it's <just> yeah, like, <laughs> love it. Haku builds an ice wall in defense, which Katara slides up and over. She lands onto a nearby post and melts ice over her feet to lock herself in place. She tells Paku, you can't knock me down. After his attack, she charges back at him. Paku draws up a wall of ice, which she liquefies. She attempts to land blows, but Paku ducks them all. He throws her into a pool of water, but Katara emerges from the pool, shaking out her hair and summoning a small pillar of ice, where she proceeds to send a series of ice discs at her opponent. Paku breaks up most of them using his wrists in a very practiced move, which is very reminiscent of many martial arts mm -hmm. moves. And there's this one moment where a disc comes very close to his face and we can see his reflection in its surface. And he seems a little startled. He does that like slow motion, like, and he's like, no, yeah. he looks at himself like, whoa, he's like, that could have been my head. Matrix moment. Yeah, absolutely. Katara then attacks by sending a stream of water at him, which Paku generates into a larger stream of water that he sends back at her full force. Katara is knocked back a couple feet and there is a close-up shot of her where she's bent over and breathes out hard and we can see her breath on the air. Mm -hmm. She jumps up and sends two snow pillars down on top of Paku, which he turns into a dusty mist of snow. When the mist clears, he says, well, I'm impressed. You are an excellent waterbender. She replies, but you still won't teach me, will you? And nope, this is not going to change his mind. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. very impressive but not enough which i think is so close-minded like 
it is obvious how naturally gifted and powerful Katara is as a waterbender. Yeah. I almost feel like it's a crime to not foster that kind of talent. I, I think at this point he's considering doing it, even though he says he's not, but he's just like too stubborn. Like, so at this point, the way I kind of interpreted it was he realizes her skill. He knows she would be an, an excellent pupil and an excellent student. But like bringing her on as a student would mean he has to accept that he was wrong. And Paku doesn't strike me as the type of guy who admits when he's wrong. Yeah, good point. They continue to fight until finally Paku strikes Katara down and knocks her necklace off in the process. He bends water into several long shards and sends them down to Katara and pins her in place. She becomes trapped in this frozen cage. Yeah, real quick too, that ice cage was inspired by the movie House of Flying Daggers. It was a bamboo cage in that movie though. Yeah, yeah. I did see that. That's really cool. It's very effective too yeah, because oh yeah. once he traps her in place, you know, she is literally rendered motionless. She cannot escape, but she still struggles. Oh, yeah. And at this point, her her hair has been knocked loose. I think that's the first time we saw her hair down, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. At this point, Paku notices the necklace on the ground and picks it up and says it's his necklace. No, it's not. It's my grand-grands. It's mine. Leave it alone, you <laughs> jerk. Yeah. This has been my necklace the whole show. <laughs> I lost it for a little bit, so it's Zuko's for a couple episodes, but it's been mine <laughs> most of the time. Yes. Paku reveals that he made this necklace 60 years ago for the love of his life, Kana. Dun, dun, dun. See, this is where I view Paku in a different light right there. Yeah. Because he refers to Kana as the love of his life, which clearly was not reciprocated. So he probably was just decimated by that and probably shaped the man he is today just because he was like well this was supposed to happen you know he probably just was daydreaming and thinking of this whole life with kids and whatever and whatever people do in the northern uh water tribe and then he just doesn't have that now and he never gets it yeah. as far as we know so he's just like this miserable old man living alone he doesn't want any part so maybe that's also why he purposefully became a water bending teacher because he's been like holding this like sexist grudge against all women in the water tribe because one left him i wonder that would Can be like imagine? taking his character to the extreme it, but like yeah he's an extreme or individual like yeah or like that's why he's very adamant yeah i know grand grand was not a water bender right um her daughter aya was yeah but yeah, I wonder if that somehow translated to his rigid viewpoint of women in waterbending. Yeah. And also, like, I don't know, just this whole, like, revelation for me just softened him so much as an individual. Yeah. He was this, like, stone cold. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> just, like, by the rules teacher. And now, all of a sudden, you see what he was before that. And it opens up yeah. this whole new world of possibility. So, like... I don't think so. This also makes me wonder because I don't think he was a jerk as a kid because no one ever says this like jerk waterbender or whatever. There's like they always refer to him or that one time is referred to as a young waterbender, not like this yeah. jerk like guy who just like would waterbend circles around her and all this stuff. No, it was just, so yeah. I wonder what it was about Paku that made Grand Grand run. If it was more she didn't want to marry, she wanted the choice or if she didn't like him. Yeah. 
I I wonder if it was a little bit of a combination of both, but I imagine just from what I've seen of both Gran Gran and Paku and also what happens with them later in the series, I think it was mostly the society yeah. and a little bit him. Okay. Like he may have fallen in love faster than she did. Fair. And while she may have been like fond of him, she couldn't let herself become trapped in that culture anymore. Fair. And I mean, going back to what you said too, if the Southern Water Tribe fostered inclusion and taught their women how to water bend, maybe word got out or that's just something that they all knew. And so she's like, you know what? That sounds like a better fit for me. I'm just going to leave and go down there. Yeah. Yeah. Or she had nowhere else to go. Just go there. Yeah. Yeah. We Is does, is Paku a jerk later in the series? And I'm just completely wrong. Um, he's, he's still Paku, but he's less jerky in the future. Okay. So he's like, he's still the stern kind of gruff grandpa type, yeah. but he's a little nicer. More accepting, I hope. Yeah. Okay. More accepting. Okay. As long as he learns a lesson, <laughs> that's all I care about. Yes. I think he does. Okay, cool. I also want to note here uh, that the style they're using when they're fighting, or at least the style he is using when he fights is the Northern water bending style, which is is the most widespread form of the style because of what we talked about before, how the Southern tribe was kind of broken up and the Southern style was pretty much rendered extinct during the Hundred Year War because uh-huh. there just were no waterbenders left. Right. Uh, there's one exception that we'll find out about later, but the Northern waterbending styles is obviously what he is using, but I like how they were able to kind of juxtapose his practiced bending against Katara's almost like street fighting yeah. bending. She's just kind of throwing everything at him without much like polished moves. Yep. Yeah. And all yeah. Of, all of his movements are very like fluid. I mean, that's the only way I don't I didn't mean to put a pun in there, but that's the way it is, right? <laughs> Bonus pun. Bonus pun. Uh the thing I'm like referring to specifically is when she throws this like like just this stream of water at him and he freezes it and like does a little cool guy like skateboarding, iceboarding, like trick on yeah. it, right? Like he does that a lot. Yeah. Well practiced. He knows how to do that. This also makes me wonder, this is too sciencey, and I've been thinking way too much into this. Water benders can turn water into ice back into water, which means that they can vibrate the molecules of the water because that's how you heat up water is the faster the molecules in the water vibrate, the hotter it gets. So they can never really evaporate water, but they can turn it from ice back to water, which is almost yeah. firebending. If they can control the heat of water, like that's real close. Yeah. Well, they can obviously turn it to ice. Yeah. So you're right. The other side of the spectrum is like boiling water yep. or as hot as it can go. Yeah. They, we don't yeah. see that ever, I don't think. Not that I can remember. I'm sure someone will, will correct me on that. And thank you if you do so. But they definitely <laughs> multiple times turn water into ice and back and forth effortlessly. Yeah. And so on that note, that is also what defines a master waterbender yeah. is the ability to change water through its multiple forms in a fluid way. Like being so practiced in your water bending that you can utilize all of the forms of water in your your bending. Oh my god, all the elements are way closer together than we're actually or than I was actually thinking. Because then if you turn water into mist, which is like water air. Yeah. Is that Aang's territory? Or is that, sorry, is that an uh airbender territory or is that a waterbender territory? A little bit of both. Because there's 
there's water droplets in air. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna explore the outer bounds of water bending even more in books two and three. I can't wait. Let's just do it now. Let's just get there already. Let's get there already. <laughs> And a final note about this duel is it is one of Mike and Brian's favorite action scenes from the series. Mm. And me too. Yeah, it's really cool. At the Fire Navy base, Iroh and a Fire Nation soldier pass each other in the hall. They both pause and Iroh whispers to the other, our plan is working perfectly. Zhao doesn't suspect a thing. Zuko, who is disguised as the soldier, replies, you don't have to do this. Iroh says that no nephew of his is going to stow away on a ship without some backup. He advises his nephew to remain hidden until they get to the North Pole. If he does, the Avatar will be his. Iroh and Zuko straight up bamboozled us. Not me. You, maybe. Not me. <laughs> Iroh knew he was fine. Yep. Yeah. This this is the thing. That, so, it's all part of the plan. Yeah. This, so this comes back to what you said. And my interpretation was... Iroh truly didn't know that Zuko was going to be blown up or the ship was going to be blown up. But in my head canon, Zuko survives, finds Iroh, explains what happened, and then they hatch a plan to dupe Zhao and stow away on his ship to go to the North Pole. What What is it for you? See, I think all that happened just sooner. I think as soon as Zhao left the ship that first time, Iroh and Zuko devised a plan. And we're just like, all right, we have to figure something out here because this guy doesn't just go away. He gets promoted. But how <laughs> true. Yeah. But how did they know to bank on the pirates? I think they knew that something was going to happen. I don't think they knew it was going to be the pirates necessarily, but that something was going to occur. And then when huh. Zuko saw the bird, he was like, crap, I know that parrot bird yeah. thing. Iguana, iguana bird. bird thing. Iguana parrot. Iguana parrot thing. Type <laughs> type animal. And that's when he yeah. was like, all right, now I get it. And then that he, because you, you assume, I've never heard an explosion. Actually, it's not true. I hear fireworks all the time. But usually, like, I feel like there's that hearing first and seeing later sometimes, depending how close to the explosion yeah. you are. So I'm wondering if he felt the rumblings from the bottom deck was like, okay, now it's coming. Braced himself with a fire shield, which helped them kind of survive. So Iroh knew something was going to happen that night, but didn't know exactly what. So when he saw the explosion, he was like, we knew something was going to happen. This is really extreme. I don't know if Zuko is alive or not. Huh. Interesting. But also having to play it up because he doesn't know who's watching. Interesting. Okay. Well, those are two very different perspectives. So our listeners, let us know what you think. Do you think that... Iroh and Zuko planned this the whole time? Or do you think Zuko found Iroh after the fact and then they hatched the plan to infiltrate Zhao's ship? I'm just going to say Pai Show, the game of Pai Show. That would definitely be a more high level move well, that, if it's what you're thinking of. That's Uncle's moves right there, is he's always a couple steps ahead no matter what. So it's very uncharacteristic Iroh to react after the fact without being without of planning mm. for it because everything he's done so far has been very strategic including when he knocks over all those spears making a mess like i remember you were like oh yeah he's just being clumsy and i was like no i think that was to throw zhao off balance yeah in the conversation oh my god wow let us know <laughs> let us know what you think <laughs> haku holds katara's necklace as he recounts how he made the necklace for kana expecting they would have a long and happy life together he said he loved her, but she didn't love you, did she? Asks Katara. It was an arranged marriage. Grand Grand wouldn't let your stupid tribe's custom ruin her life. That's why she left. The camera pans to Yue as Katara says this, who breaks down in tears and runs away. 
Aang smiles at Sokka and tells him to go get her. Okay, I hate this moment. I'm sorry. I hate that moment so much. What, that she runs away and it's cries? Just, or Oh, it's just so dramatic. It's just yeah. like burst into tears and then run away. I think it's because it's tapping into what you were saying about her being the stereotypical princess in some ways. Yeah. I mean, in this episode, that's all she is. That's her like yeah. point. For the, I know it doesn't happen in later episodes, but this episode, her character is the princesses in this castle and she and yeah. she's crying. I know. I I believe that Sokka and Yue are compatible or, you know, as compatible as teenagers who are still figuring out who they are mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. be. Uh, but I felt like that moment was just a little unnecessary because it felt forced. Yeah. The sun has set by the time Sokka finds Yue on the bridge that they met on before in the city. She asks him what he wants from her, to which he replies, nothing. I just want you to know I think you're beautiful. And I never thought a girl like you would even notice a guy like me. He tells her that he thinks he understands what's going on now. She's a princess and he's just a southern peasant. He begins to walk away, but she pulls him back to her into a kiss. This really confuses him. And Yue explains that even though she really likes him, they can't be together because she's engaged. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> She shows him her betrothal necklace and apologizes, then runs away from him a second time. That's all she does. I know. Runs away. I know. That's so annoying. She she thankfully gets a little cooler the next okay. two episodes. Okay. This is very basic level yeah. introduction to her character. The next morning, Katara arrives breathless to the waterbending lesson. Master Paku appears to reprimand her by asking, what do you think you're doing? But then continues, it's past sunrise. You're late. The class resumes with Katara as one of Master Paku's waterbending students. Out on the ocean, Zhao stands on one of his ships with Iroh by his side. Set a course for the Northern Water Tribe, he says. The ship's engine ignites and the camera pulls away to reveal an entire fleet of Fire Nation ships behind them. The invasion force is assembled. And Zhao just wants to flaunt his fleets. That's all he wants to do. He just wants all the fleets and he's just going to flaunt them. That's it. <laughs> yep. In that last scene between Yue and Sokka, a simple harp-sounding version of The Four Seasons is played. Mm -hmm. And The Four Seasons actually becomes kind of like their love song for this three-episode arc, Mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is really cool. I did notice that there, it might just be like my brain playing tricks on me, but I did notice like a couple chords here and there being like scattered throughout the episode. But as soon mm. as my brain caught on to it, it like turned into a different song completely. It was very odd. Yeah, huh, that is interesting. Another thing is Katara's necklace is our Chekhov's gun mm. because it was important and in plain sight the whole time. But the true meaning and importance isn't explained to us until now yeah. when it's revealed to be Paku's. Yeah, that also kind of makes me wonder, too, like, is Paku really over his prejudice of not training women or is he making the exception for the love of his life's granddaughter yeah i was wondering the same thing i hope it's the former but i can see it being the latter pretty easily yeah me too with the northern water tribes culture as patriarchal as it is it also means men are limited as well because let's say a man didn't want to become a warrior he wanted to become a doctor or a healer Well, the stigma is, no, you're not a woman. You can't learn to heal. And this is something that we see in the show being really deeply rooted in the culture Mm. until Legend of Korra, when we finally get to see an example of a male waterbender who is a healer. Yeah. 
And that kind of like has some roots in real world too, where typically a woman is seen as being the more caring and loving and having more healing and softer properties. Yes. At least in 2005, that was probably like the the consensus versus like men who are like rugged and hunters and all that stuff. And it, but it does limit both sexes to those roles when that's not accurate. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I have one final thing that blew my mind yeah. and I hope it blows yours too. So remember that moment in the commentary when they were like, yeah, that moon phase, mm-hmm. very intentional. Mm-hmm. Well, I found this from a fan. I don't know when this was. I think it's old. But they show picture evidence of how the night sky in this episode matches a star map that Katara finds later in the episode, The Desert. Oh, interesting. I'm just make a mental note of that. Eight? Hmm. So we're going to include this in the show notes, but in the picture, it shows very specific constellations in the sky that we see on the star map. And the person who posted this even made a note that they adjusted the night sky for season change. That's really cool. If that was 100% intentional, that is incredible continuity. Yeah, really? Jeez. And and that is all I have. Do you have any other final notes? Uh, there's one thing I forgot to mention. Let me double check. Back when Paku was sparring slash fighting, whatever you want to call it, with Katara, she ices her feet down. So she's like very like stable. Yeah. That is actually um, she's like she roots herself, essentially. And that's a key principle of Kung Fu is just to root yourself. Ooh, yeah. So she actually just like literally does that, which is very, very cool to see. But yeah, that was all I had. Cool. Who is your MVP? Uh, I could tell you who my MVP is not. <laughs> that's pretty easy. UA? It's not UA. It's not Paku. It's not Xiao. Yep. Uh, I think I think honestly... I think it's Katara for me in this episode. Yeah, me too. That feels weird for me to say. Not that I don't like Katara. I know, I'm shocked. Well, so like she pretty much begins the transformation that will impact future generations just by being herself and sticking to her morals. And that is super impactful. And if that's not MVP worthy, I don't know what is. Beautifully said. Yes, exactly. What about your moral of the story? Don't be sexist. (laughs) That's a good one. Just don't. Just, just don't do just it. Don't, it's not a good look. Just don't do it. We're all people. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, if, I, if I'm if i going to say it more intelligently or semi-intelligently, it would, I would probably phrase it in a way that says, you know, like tradition is great and all, but it's okay to break it or it's okay to deviate it into, or to really question it and say, why is this the way it is? So like yeah. for me, so this is a little bit, a little bit about me that people may or may not be asking for, but so I was raised Jewish. So what that meant was in my family, when so when my dad was growing up, they kept kosher. We didn't really so yeah. much because um, my mom wasn't Jewish. She converted. But you can't eat pork and you can't mix cheese and uh, meat. I started asking at a not like at an early age, but like I would say 11, 12, 13, when I'm starting to form my own thoughts in the world. I'm like, why can't I do that? I know I can't do that or I shouldn't do that, but why? Well, it turns out, Way back when, pork was actually dangerous to eat because pigs were pretty un- unclean. So, like, if you ate it, you ran a risk of getting sick and dying. So you don't do it, right? That's not the case anymore. Yeah. And there's there's a moral thing with meat and cheese, but I got over it. <laughs> I got over that explanation <laughs> real quick. Yeah. yeah, that's a great example. But yeah, like, that's kind of like, for me, it's like, this is the way things are based off tradition. And this is why it doesn't mean that's the case anymore. 
So question, right. question, tradition, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's so good. I'm sorry. I'm going to piggyback on that yeah. because I think that's really at the heart of this episode, which is just not taking things at face value, not accepting things the way they are because they've always been like that. I mean, that's really how you get problems with institutionalized ideas. I mean, you see that in our world all over the place, especially recently, where we're really starting to peel back our beliefs and take a closer look at the institutionalized racism and and other problems in our society. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think having a healthy questioning nature so you can come at something and say, why is it like this? Yeah. Why did it become this way? And is that relevant to us anymore is is a really great practice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you again for supporting us in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. We've really been thrilled to to see the reaction to the new Ang mail video yeah. that we that we posted on YouTube. We hope it's fun for you. It was fun for us to to record. We're going to be continuing to do that, so please continue to submit your thoughts, feedback or anything else you want to share with us through either Twitter at podcast avatar, through email at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com or by leaving a five-star rated review on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. And remember, if you're caught up on all the episodes and you're caught up on the YouTube content, you can always join me over at twitch.tv slash boostergreg every Monday and Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is, of course, unless I'm doing an indie showcase over at The Geek Generation. Yes. So, or over at twitch.tv slash The Geek Generation. You can join the Geek Generation Discord. You can also, like Acorn was saying, follow us on Twitter, all that. We're going to be a little bit better at if we're doing something on the Geek Generation. Uh, we're going to, I think, post to there just so everyone is aware of yeah. it. And yeah, that, that's that's all I got. And I'm Acorn. You can find me on Twitter at Acorn Bandit. I am on another podcast here on the network, which is Dark, a companion podcast to the Netflix original series, which is so fun. We're having a great discussion so far on all the characters and topics and themes. So if you're a fan of Dark, please consider checking it out. We'd really uh, love to have you join us. Coming up next time. It's it's the end of book one. It's the finale. We have nothing clever. It's literally the end. We're, we're, we're done we did with book it. one. We did it. We're here. Yes. We're so <laughs> close to Toph. Yes, we're so close to Toph. Only a couple episodes away. Yes. Yes. So we'll see you next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a part of the Geek Generation Network. Check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.